As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations, find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us right now is Dominic Constant, the head of macro strategy at Mizuho Americas. Dom, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. What a morning for it. Let's just start with yesterday and that news conference. Number one takeaway for you, Dom, what was it? Um, well, the, the, the main thing I thought was actually at least they started to introduce the idea uh, that the cumulative effects of, uh, of monetary tightening to date are going to have to be considered. So there's some sense of neutral and a measure of restrictiveness that's uh, uh, in place and is going to be in place as the forwards uh, are realised. So, that, I mean, that was the main thing. There's a, there's a shift in narrative. I, I absolutely yeah. agree. It's important that they raise the, uh, you know, the, the peak funds rate versus their September dots. Uh, but, you know, that, that was, that's been going on for a while anyway. So but the main thing for me is a new narrative, if you like. Dominic, your note yesterday, and folks, you can get it from Mizuho. There's a single classic constant paragraph in there where you say this is faith-based central banking and they risk a textbook type two error, something the laureate Michael Spence talks a lot about. Tell us about the certitude of Fed policy buttressed up against the potential for error. Well, I mean, the, the problem is um, we don't really know where neutral um, rates are um, in the sense of producing or being consistent with price stability. You only sort of observe that after the event. So uh, we can look back at historical data, and because we don't even have that much data going, only going back maybe 20 years, uh, you know, uh, the neutral rate, you know, right now based on that backward-looking thing would be around one percent. But we could be in a new regime, in which case neutral rates are higher. Uh, and uh, so by by the, those old metrics. The Fed is definitely super restrictive, um, but they may not be restrictive enough uh, if you, uh, you know, if the neutral rate is, is in fact higher. And understanding why neutral shifts is very important. And uh, there are lots of behavioral things that could be going on there. There are structural things that are going on in demographics and globalization that could be shifting to neutral. So in some sense, uh, you know, the question is, what does a central bank do in this environment? Uh, and uh, I would just suggest they have to be a bit cautious at some point when, when they know that on old metrics they're super restrictive uh, perhaps they need to sort of just take a pause recalibrate you know wait uh, wait out a couple of meetings in the course of 2024 before they decide if they need to carry on uh, raising rates so it would be a kind of a pause that refreshes a tightening cycle or, or maybe everything will fall into place and they'll say phew you know we thank goodness we've done enough uh, and then maybe they've done too much <laughs> and they have to scurry back the other direction so that's the issue Dominic we were talking earlier at the beginning of the show John asked is there any reason to be bullish right now in equities because you've got the Fed chair basically coming out and in so many words 
not being particularly happy at seeing any kind of rally in the face of this inflation and the need for tighter financial conditions. What's your view on that? I mean, where could there be room for bullishness amid an absolute rebuttal of any type of dovish pivot? Well, it's hard to be bullish on anything, to be honest, uh, either either bonds or equities. Um, the uh, the issue for equities, I think, really is down to a hard landing or soft landing. If there's a hard landing, you definitely cannot be bullish uh, on equities. Uh, they have a, a good downside in, in earnings. And, you know, we would su- suggest at least another sort of, you know, 10, maybe even 20 percent downside in price on a sort of hard landing. Uh, the, the other problem you've got is even with a sort of softish landing, uh, the, the route to, to a softish landing, as we've always argued, is is anyway through margin compression. <laughs> so it's, it's earnings coming down. It's just that you don't have to have a massive cost reduction on top of it, which would involve, you know, really sort of shutting down sort of businesses. Uh, so uh, it's very difficult to be, be, be bullish. I would just say that you could do a weighted average of soft versus hard landing outcomes. Uh, right now, by the way, we're not really getting any sense of any landing. <laughs> uh, and uh, But you could do a weighted uh, average and you could say that, you know, fair value perhaps is around, you know, 3,600. That's kind of where we've been working to. Uh, and and if the if the clouds sort of clear and and the soft landing looks like it's sort of taking hold, then then you've got upside, you know, up to around four thousand or so on the S and P. So that's the way I approach it. So yes, yeah, difficult to be bullish, um, but you know maybe if you're in the soft landing camp, you can sort of use some of this weakness uh, to you know accumulate, uh, you know, cover some shorts perhaps, and, and maybe sort of look for some kind of upside uh, down the road. Certainly difficult to be in that camp right now, Dominic Costum. Thank you, sir, of Misuo. Yesterday, somewhere in the vicinity of two-thirds of the way through the Fed discussion, there was a modest note from Citigroup, and they framed out a 5% two-year yield. To discuss that, Winnie Caesar joins us now, Global Head of Credit Strategy at Credit Sites. Winnie, how does your world change if the two-year yield moves from 4.70% to 5.00%? What actually are we going to live with a 5% two-year yield? Well, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. I think that the conversation around a 5% yield, both in the front end in the two-year, is important, as well as in the long end of the curve with the 10-year, where we've had a lot of clients asking whether we're going to... I I know. Is it about Halloween? Is it like a Halloween after effect? There we go. He's really disappointed that we could only buy $10,000 worth of those uh, <laughs> I-bonds for his future savings. He's really set on buying a monster truck for himself when he's older. So hopefully That's we good. get there. I like that. But clients have been really focused on what happens if we hit these 5% levels, both in the front end and in the long end. And I think that the 2% 10-year yield or the 5% two-year yield discussion is really important from kind of a credit risk perspective, whereas the two, the five percent ten year yield is really important from a duration risk perspective, and the the performance in credit portfolios this year has been equally neg- negatively impacted by both credit and duration risk. So clients are trying to figure out, okay, which bet do I take now? Do I say a recession is coming, extend duration, and things right. are going to be okay? Or alternatively, am I going to just get whipsawed again with the 10-year going to 5%? In your world, Winnie, and this is not the world of our listeners and viewers, how do you link the two-year yield move up 
with what we see in the new LIBOR OIS, the FRA OIS through 50 beeps this morning. This is all esoteric, folks, but all you need to know is in Winnie Caesar's world, yields up. What does that mean to you? How do you link them? So yields up has a lot to just do with market liquidity functions and really what has been happening with depository institutions and less smooth functioning in the treasury market more broadly. We have seen over the course of this year, as the Fed really started to do QT and then kind of amped up its bond roll off, the treasury market liquidity has eroded pretty considerably. And this has been particularly true in the front end of the curve, which is why we're seeing a lot of just really challenging movements on the LIBOR side of things and in just the front end of the treasury market. Given the uh, volatility that we've seen in, in benchmark rates, how much can you get behind this assertion by J.P. Morgan's Bob Michael yesterday on Bloomberg TV with John uh, when he was saying that investment grade debt really is the ballast, the sort of calm in the storm to hang on to, despite some of this underlying volatility? Yeah, so I really respect that view. We've been very constructive on U.S. investment grade debt with all in yields at 6% in USIG. Historically, that's actually a level where you can buy high yield and perform pretty well in portfolios. So to have a cohort of companies that are much stronger fundamentally at a 6% yield feels really good. I think that what's really tripping investors up is the percentage of spread that contributes to that all-in yield is much lower than it has been for the past 10 years, just because government treasury yields are so much higher. So investors are really trying to wrap their head around how much credit risk can I take and feel comfortable with? I love this 6% all-in yield. And what we're telling investors is the IG universe has a lot of flex in their liquidity, in their balance sheets, in order to weather a continued economic deceleration. Winnie, given all of this, though, how much do you have to look at some of the technicals, right? This question of the LDI concerns over in the United Mm -hmm. Kingdom, perhaps not in the same form, but forced selling from some big institutions that have been hit with massive Mm -hmm. losses, some of which, and I'm talking about the private debt and the private uh, equity world, might not have been realized yet. Yeah, so the liquidity side of the conversation is really interesting, especially because one of the top things we heard from investors coming into this year was We're reducing our allocations to USIG. We're reducing our allocations to US high yield. We realize that yields are going higher. We realize that policy tightening is upon us. And where people were going, floating rate asset classes, CLOs, leveraged loans, private credit, private equity. So there is the potential that we continue to see kind of this re-rack in terms of asset allocation. But the benefit to USIG and high yield is a lot of investors started their years underweight those asset classes. And so there's a pretty good case to be made that they should be rotating into something else. The question is, how much liquidity did they kind of preserve or put on hand at the beginning of the year instead of putting all their eggs in the EM basket or in the private credit basket? Uh, Winnie, when we look at short-term paper, and I guess we've got to look to December as well, does the Fed parlor game and the Fed speeches that we're going to get I can't imagine what they're going to be like here in the coming days. When when we look at the speeches, does that actually affect short-term yields? Are they now just a beast out into 2023 to stay elevated? I do think that what the Fed governors end up saying over the next few weeks is going to be important. We've seen a lot of volatility. In what way? 
We've seen a lot of volatility in the terminal rate that's priced in to the Fed funds futures market just in the past 12 hours or so. Now with a terminal rate well above 5%, about 5.18%, we're going to be very focused on the conversation around lag effects and kind of the appropriate pace of tightening right. from here on out. Do you- Who knows? Do you, I don't mean to interrupt, Winnie, but this is just absolutely critical. Do you think various and sundry Fed speakers will talk back what we heard from Chairman Powell yesterday? I think that there is the potential that there will be more of a focus on the lag effects and a slower pace of rate hikes from here on out. Whereas Fed Chair Powell was very much focused on kind of that overall higher destination in terms of Fed funds, I think that the pace and kind of the path to get to that destination is still highly uncertain. There's still a lot of economic data to come from now through the end of the year and, you know, let alone into next year. So I do think that the Fed speakers are going to be focused on that lag effect between policy tightening and actual economic impact. Because when we talk to our analysts at credit sites who cover all of these companies, they're definitely seeing some signs of kind of transition in terms of inflationary pressure and also transition in terms of expectations for next year, which indicates to me that there is some deceleration in inflation. There is a deceleration in growth. And the Fed kind of needs to acknowledge that and that the pace of tightening needs to be much more reconciled with kind of the lagged impact of policy tightening on actual economic conditions. Winnie Caesar, thank you. Winnie Caesar of Credit Sites. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now we talk to Jeffrey Hughes, Senior Market Strategist. BNY Mellon as well. Jeff, I don't even know where to begin other than I think an emotion of our listeners and viewers. Is the system near breaking? No, it's not in the UK, but dare we use that P word, unpivot. There's a key line here. There are clear signs of the cost of living crisis taking hold on, on economic activity, suggesting more gradual approach was warranted, an over-tightening in policy. 
right? They are worried about overtaking. They're worried about hitting the afterburners at exactly the wrong point in the household cycle. So some doubts are creeping in. Uh, and I think that's where we are. This is really very different from where the Fed is right now. Actually, everyone else is different from the Fed is right now. You look at Norges earlier today, um, it looks like Europe is starting to pull away or rather pull back. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go, Jeff. How much is this really representing a sea change amongst, amongst central bankers? The fact that one uh, committee member on the Bank of England's committee did vote for a 50 basis point hike, another one 25 basis point. How much is that the dissent that you're going to increasingly see around the world that will eventually filter back to the Fed? So it is only going to start to increase. Um, uh, starting in Europe, again, we saw it in Norway today. It didn't seem like 50 basis points was on the table, um, even though um, you know that was where the market um, was. And now we're going to start to only see increasing dissent of not um, pursuing things as aggressively. The Fed, however, um, so I think you mentioned this early in, uh, in the program, you know, our dollar, your problem is going to take quite a bit for them to start to worry about international conditions. Um, because from the US's point of view, it's about tightening conditions in the US. The US economy is still doing well. So there's no obligation for the Fed to take into account wider conditions. How long can this last, Jeff? How, how long is, can this divergence where the dollar is the preeminent trade and continues to strengthen? Is that an entire 2023 kind of trade? So it will last longer than markets um, expect, but more crucially from, from a positioning point of view, it will last longer than markets hope. Right. So there will still be repeated efforts to price in a Fed pivot trade through equities, you know, through bonds, you know, through FX, you know, through the dollar and the like. But I think there's still a few more rounds of disappointments um, to come. We look at you know, where Fed terminal pricing is, you know, right now it's going up, whereas everywhere else now it's probably going to start coming off. Jeff, we've been discussing whether you should be trading growth expectations or rates when it comes to the euro, when it comes to sterling. And Lisa's been building on that in this conversation, too. Based on what the Bank of England has just said, is that positive news for sterling that they're pushing back against a higher terminal rate that would have actually hammered growth over the next couple of years? Um, I think initially it's not, um, to be frank, um, because uh, if the market's still working off rate differentials you know, between the BOE and the Fed, um, so you know, that correlation needs to snap back right after the mini budget uh, kind of trashed it. Uh, so if that correlation um, does snap back, you know, then on a cable point of view, you know, then uh, sterling is going to struggle. Um, but uh, if you think uh, that not as tight policy of the household is going to get some relief, um, then uh, growth is going to be slightly better in the UK compared to the Eurozone, compared to Scandinavia, then relative value trades, and you know, that could start to uh, come through. We just look at intra-European divergence, but the dollar is still going to reign supreme at this point. We're getting a bonus round, Tom, with Jeff Yu. How cool is that? It's good. Jeff's yeah, going to stick no, with great, us. Great, 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 great. Jeff Yu of BMY Mallard. Dean Mackey was a force on Wall Street. He went off to a gentleman named Cohen at 0.72 and is the chief U.S. economist for 0.72, and I dare say the New York Mets as well. Dr. Mackey joins us uh, this morning. Dean Mackey, the governor of the Bank of England, just framed out a two-year recession. America is different. How different is the United States from the turmoil of double-digit inflation we see worldwide? The, the main difference, Tom, is there's just a lot more momentum in the U.S. economy. You know, you, Europe and the U.K. are dealing with a much bigger rise in energy prices, and they're, you know, they have a war on their doorstep. Uh, the U.S. has a lot of momentum, especially in the service sector, and we think that's why, you know, jobless claims are staying low. We don't think the unemployment rate is going to rise soon. Uh, the momentum in the service sector is going to continue. Uh, the rate hikes are slowing things like housing, uh, but it's not having an impact on services. Right. And we think it'll take a long time to happen. 
Dr. Mackey, you were weaned at Stanford off of John Taylor and other elites. Do their rules work now? Does Oaken's Law, the beverage curb of LSE that uh, Jerome Powell mentioned yesterday, and the Taylor rule of Stanford, are those operative theories now, or are we flying by the seat of our pants? I think, you know, those rules can give some guidance, but but really the Fed's not having have hasn't dealt with the pandemic before in the post-pandemic era. So those rules can give the Fed some idea of where to go, but it's really a different environment right now. How do you understand, Dean, the productivity levels that are not recovering at any kind of real pace and this idea that we don't necessarily see any decline in the number of uh, people who are getting jobs? How do you understand this at a time when we're hearing anecdotally, anecdotally so many companies laying people off, reducing some of their workforce through attrition? I think what, what has happened is that not long ago, most companies were having trouble finding workers. And especially in that service sector, which is 71% of U.S. employment, there's no reason they're going to start laying people off immediately. Um, you know, they're they're looking at business. There's still the shift from goods to services spending happening, uh, and that's bolstering service sector employment. Um, the productivity numbers, I think, are also being weighed down by what I do think is an understatement of GDP in the first half of this year. Um, it doesn't make sense that employers were adding 500,000 jobs per month while the economy was contracting. So I think that's eventually going to get revised to something more in line with what gross domestic income was was telling us. But uh, in any case, productivity is, is pretty weak right now. Do you think that the labor market is an accurate reflection of some of the pain that's being felt in the market? In other words, is this really the metric that the Federal Reserve should be targeting right now to understand the progress that they're making in bringing down inflation? I mean, I think the labor market is an important step in the process um, in, of bringing down inflation. Now, the thing, one thing I would mention is that much of the inflation we have isn't directly tied to wage inflation. You know, we all know about the supply chain problems, the you know the goods price uh, surge that we saw during the pandemic and afterwards. Uh, but I do think wage growth and the labor is high enough, and the labor market's tight enough that it is a force on inflation right now. So the Fed ultimately does need to slow it down, but I think it's going to be difficult for them to do that. Dean Mackey, Dominic Constum, you knew him at Credit Suisse when you were at Barclays and at Deutsche Bank. Dominic Constum says this is a Fed that is super restrictive. Do you agree? I wouldn't say they're super restrictive right now. Um, you know, they are raising rates quite rapidly, so they are getting into restrictive territory. And you are seeing them having an effect. The housing market's clearly clearly contracting at this point. So their, their policy is working in that sense. Uh, but I do think that they're dealing with a different environment now where you, know, you do have still reopening that's happening in the service sector. And that means that you're not going to get the service sector uh, contracting in the way that it often does during a recession. Dean, we just want to know if Point72 has done any modelling on what would happen to the Queen's economy if Aaron Judge went to the Mets. Have you modelled that out yet? Uh, I'm working on it, but no, I haven't done it. He's that. working on it, TK. That's a scoop, isn't Come it? Come on, Dean. We got to, you know, he's working you, know on it. you you got to have Mr. Cohen. We got to get Steve Cohen and you on the show uh, together, Dean. I think you can provide cover for us to talk to Mr. Cohen about this. I mean, Aaron Judge, Texas Rangers, Aaron Judge, San Francisco Giants, yeah. Aaron Judge. Dean, Steve Cohen's going to let Judge go to the LA Dodgers? It's un American. <laughs> you can run. Uh -huh.
No, no comment. Dean okay. Mackey. <laughs> Let him go. Of point seventy-two. Dean's oh. like ready to pull the cable out the exactly. back of the out the back of the laptop. I, I or honestly something. don't blame him. Dean, Dean Mackey of point seventy-two. Thank you, Dean. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from seven to ten a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from six to nine a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.